0: 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to be at. This is the last message in the series. And so we have the last five verses of the book. And this is kind of Timothy's postscript. It's his PS comments uh, from, you know, the letter that he wrote to Timothy. And uh, what's interesting is he's going to talk and address uh, one specific kind of people. And uh, he's really addressing also um Timothy directly, but what he says in these two things is basically really, really relevant for us today. He's gonna talk to those who are materially wealthy, and uh, we live in Western civilization, and uh, whether or not you feel as if you are materially wealthy, comparative to the rest of the world, you are. And not only that, but he's gonna talk to Timothy about the danger of how the gospel is either being misunderstood, misrepresented, or just flat out denied. And so we live in a culture today where we are affluent, whether or not we recognize it or want to recognize it. In addition to that, we are living in a society that is marginalizing and downright rejecting the gospel. Those are two major themes in what we're going to see in these five verses. So I think it's incredibly relevant, incredibly applicable for today. So if you have a Bible, let's go to First Timothy chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 17. Remember, I'm reading out of the ESV, but we have uh, the text on the screen for you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And grace be with you. So, Father, thank you for this text. God, thank you for how we as a church for the past few months have been pouring over this text, this great letter of 1 Timothy. God, we know that you wrote it not just from Paul to Timothy, but you preserved it for your church at large. And so, God, you have taught us many things, and I pray once again this morning you would teach us. Lord, we are so blessed and so privileged to live in a materially wealthy society, and yet because of all that we have, there are great responsibilities you lay at our feet. In addition to that, Lord, we live in a society, in a world as Jesus said, hates him and therefore hates the good news about him. And so even from um, amongst the, own, the churches and from within churches, the gospel is being compromised. It's being misrepresented and flat out denied. So God, with these two themes in mind, would you help us? God, would you teach us? Would you show us what it is you want us to know and believe and how to live and so God speak I pray and we'll give you the things for what you show us in Jesus name amen what I want you guys to leave today with is this understanding it comes from verse 19 where Paul gives all these directions but then he uses the word so that and it says that they may take hold of that which is truly life you see there's there's this idea of taking hold of that which is truly life there's a lot of kinds of life but there's really only one true life, a godly life. And so Paul wants to make sure that the rich in this age, and, and especially for us in Western civilization, that he's, he's talking to us. If you want true life, it's a life of a godly life. And so I want you to, to really take away today this, that taking hold of a godly life means two things, that we should seek to be generous with our resources And secondly, that we should guard the gospel from being perverted. So these two things are significant in these five verses. I know it's only five verses. It's short, but there's a lot packed in here. And Paul really wants us to understand, first and foremost, if you're going to take hold of a godly life and have true life, it means that you are going to be actively seeking ways in which you can be generous with whatever it is that God has given you as a resource. Secondly, it means that we need to guard the gospel. From perversion. That's important. You know, in these five verses, it really is Paul's way of kind of summarizing as a postscript of many of the themes he's already touched on. And so because he touches on some of the themes that are already been through the book of uh, uh, 1 Timothy and, and recognizing that some of you perhaps haven't been here for the last number of weeks. I want to do a quick overview of where we've been and, and where and what Paul has wrote and has written. Man, I am tired from the sun yesterday. <laughs> I know words. They just, nah. <laughs> so let's go, let's, let's, let's have ourselves a little overview. And, and here's a couple of the themes that Paul really talks about. The first one is this, is that some have abandoned the gospel and therefore have just walked away from the faith. And we see this theme picked up in chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul writes this. He says, as I urged you, referring to Timothy, as I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. So here it is. Paul said, I left you in the church in Ephesus because I need you to do something for me, and it's namely this. I want you to teach people or to charge people not to teach any different doctrine. Because there are some people in the church who are teaching things they ought not to teach, you need to find them, confront them, tell them, knock it off. And then we have in verse 6, these certain persons, by swerving from these, by swerving from the gospel, they have wandered away into vain discussions. And then in verse 19, he writes this, by rejecting this, by rejecting the gospel, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And then he goes on to write in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. How? by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, and look at this, to the teachings of demons. You see, the Spirit specifically said some people are not going to continue not behaving like Christians. Some people are going to straight up start disbelieving the gospel and believing some other false teaching. And so Paul's gravely concerned about this. And so he writes in First Timothy also, in First Timothy chapter 5, about making sure we understand that it's just not about exclusively what you believe, but there's more to it that he's concerned about. 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So not only is Paul concerned with what's being taught, but now he's starting to take a turn and says, you know what? When you deny the gospel and you deny what what Christianity is and what we're supposed to believe, that's not good. But at the same time, you can behaviorally deny the faith as well, and that is evidenced by the way that you stop loving people around you. And if you stop believing the doctrine of the gospel and you stop being godly in the way that you love and serve other people, both ways are ways that you can just walk away from the faith. And then he goes on and writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Remember what Pastor Larry preached on last week from Jesus, where Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. Why? Well, because if you serve money then you will use God to get it. So money's your God. And if you serve God, you will use money to serve him. And so if we desire or crave to become rich, we fall into that temptation of serving money and letting it become our God. Now, notice he says that people who do this, they wander away from the faith. It's not as if they just suddenly fall away. Like, oh, man, what happened to me? That was sudden. It's a wander. And you've wandered. If you've ever been camping out in the woods, not like, you know, in an urban place, but in the woods, (laughs) you just wander. And sometimes when you wander, you're looking at trees and birds and squirrels. And pretty soon you stop and you go, where? Wait, where are we? Oh, here we are. It just happens. Sometimes so subtly that we don't even realize it. And that's what happens to people when they leave the Christian faith. Sometimes they just wander out without even realizing it. You see, what Paul's really concerned about is the two things, namely that we get the gospel theology right. He's concerned that people are teaching what they ought not to teach, they're believing things that they ought not to believe, but at the same time, he's worried about their godliness, that they're not behaving the way they're supposed to, because in Paul's mind, throughout the book of 1 Timothy, the two are supposed to be together. That's what it means to be in accord. Your gospel theology is matched by your godliness because all of Christianity is about what you believe and then figuring out how to get your life to match your belief. And Paul's worried that people are choosing one or the other or denying both, and either way you look at it, that's not Christianity. And so he's concerned, and that's one reason why he wrote this letter. Now, he was also concerned because in the church there was a lot of controversy, There were people arguing, and there was some dissension, and it was because of theology. And so we as modern Christians, when we hear stuff like that, and we hear that churches are having issues, and there's division and speculation and controversy and all that kind of stuff about theology, we usually have this as the solution. Here's what we typically do. We go, oh, well, let's just stop talking about it. Because if we just remove the theology... Then we'll all be happy. However, as good of a plan as that might be, which is terrible, it's just not only terrible but also not biblical. Because here's the reality, whenever you read Paul's letters and, and a church is written to him and they're like, Paul, we got an issue, and then Paul replies to them, like with 1 Corinthians, and then he addresses the issues that they're talking about. Do you remember or do you, have you read how Paul goes about solving the issue? He does this first. He goes, here's your issue. You know why? You don't believe properly. You don't know who God is. That's why you act like that. And if you notice how Paul writes in his letters, for instance, in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters out of 16 chapters in the book of Romans is all about theology. And then he uses this conjunction, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1. And from chapter 12, verse 1 to the end of the book is all application. Eleven chapters of theology five chapters of application, in just, just from just that fact alone, what do you think Paul's, uh, I guess, ideas are about when we act crazy and we are disobedient and we're living in sin? What do you think his solution is? It's not the absence of theology. Let's, let's just get rid of stuff. Let's not be precise. Let's just, everybody can believe whatever you want. Instead, he goes, no, 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 no. The solution to bad living is not the absence of theology, it is, the, it is to advocate good theology. And so in the church, if, if there's discord and, and all this kind of stuff, the solution is let us advocate right theology. And around right theology, it will solve bad theology, which is accompanied by bad living. And let me give you an example. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, and we've already read this, but let me finish it by going to verse 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which, and that word which there reminds us of, okay, when you have endless g- genealogies and speculations, Here's what happens, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul's like, hey, guys, you need, you need to make sure that the people are committing themselves to right theology because if they don't, they're going to be promoting speculations. What does that mean? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. The first word is a he, it's a pronoun. I'm going to read this, but I want you in your minds to ask your, the question, who is the he that he is referring to? Who is the he that he's referring to? I wonder who that is. Listen to this, verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, who is the he? For many people, the he is the people who study theology. These mind people, these knowledge people, what's wrong with them? But is that who he's referring to? Well, we get our answer in verse 3, where Paul writes, if anyone teaches, look at this, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, it is he who is puffed up, conceited, understands nothing, has an unhealthy craving of controversy, quarrels, dissension, slander, suspicions, constant friction. Do you notice what Paul says? It is not the one who pursues and studies theology that creates all this horrible stuff in the church. It's he who teaches bad theology that creates that. It's not theology in and of itself. It's the presence of bad theology. Why? Because right thinking leads to right living. And the book of 1 Timothy is about making sure that we get our right thinking and gospel theology in accord with right living called godliness. Let's bring those things together. Now, we're not exclusively talking about head knowledge when we talk about gospel theology because the Bible describes gospel theology as so powerful that it transforms the very way you live. And we see this evidence in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Where Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, look, Timothy, if, which means a condition, if you put these things, if you put good theology, gospel theology, if you put that before the brothers, before the church, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. <laughs> you want to serve, serve God? You wanna be good servant of God? gospel theology for the church and then he says this here's a characteristic of that is you're being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed you see there's a training here and then he goes on and says this in verse 7 have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths but instead or rather train yourself for godliness And you notice he uses the word train in two different contexts. He says, train yourselves in the good doctrine and then train yourselves in godliness. So what should he pursue, doctrine or godliness? And the answer is yes. (laughs) See, that's the beautiful thing of being a Christian is you don't have to choose between your mind and your heart. Instead, God says, I want both. Give me your thinking and love me with it give me your heart and love me with it and all of christianity is about taking our head and taking our heart and making them come as one so brothers and sisters that that i know it sounds humble and and helpful to say doctrine divides but love unites except for the statement itself is divisive How about this? Doctrine is about the God of love, and love is about being like the God of love. You can't love what you don't know. So we need both. And really, godliness is simply the gospel being lived out. Here's an example of what I mean by that. When you come to understand that you are so wretched and so sinful and that you do not have what it takes to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and transform your own life, and you learn how God has demanded that you be fully righteous in every way imaginable, but then you recognize, oh, oh, I don't think I can do that. And you hear in the gospel that God recognizes your inability and yet he gave his one and only son to you so that the righteous requirements that he demands of you can be met for you and that everything that is needed for life and godliness to be saved from your sins has been provided for you in Jesus, and therefore you simply need to repent and believe the gospel because as Jesus said on the cross, those three beautiful words, it is finished. When you start hearing that kind of stuff and you realize, man, I've been forgiven of so much, God's grace has been overflowing to me. His mercy is amazing. His love is overflowing. It's just amazing. So then when your neighbor wrongs you, guess what you do in response? Because you know the gospel, you look at them and what do you do? You don't get even. You forgive as you've been forgiven. And you look at somebody who's so unlovable and you're like, man, you are so unlovable. But because you recognize how unlovable you were and yet God loved you and demonstrated it by sending his own son to you, instead of looking at your unlovable neighbor and despising them, you look at your unlovable neighbor, pray for love and love them as you've been loved. Do you see how gospel theology leads to godliness and godliness is simply gospel theology lived out? It's both. So now let's go back to the text, and what we see is this. Paul is writing to Timothy about these major themes and how we can take hold of that which is truly life, godly life. He says, as for the rich in the present age, as for those of us who are materially wealthy, and everyone in this room, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Paul gives two negative commands. Firstly, tell them not to be haughty. Now, we don't understand what that word is most of the time. Let's be honest. You see all those vowels together, and you're like, what? You start realizing, once you realize what the definition is, that, "Uh uh-oh, that might be me. Because to be haughty means to have a spirit or attitude in which you feel superior to others. So he's telling, "Hey, if you're wealthy, like all of us in Western civilization, you cannot allow yourself to feel superior to those who have not." And unfortunately, that is the that 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 is. I don't know if I we're on video. (laughs) that kind of attitude is sometimes in the hearts of many of our missionaries i am a westerner from america and i'm wealthy and i'm coming to rescue you poor people that very thought is haughtiness and pride that's why missionaries go on the field to the poor people and they come back and they go they have more joy than me How is that possible? It's because your life is not in the abundance of your riches, Jesus said. Duh. So we can't be haughty. We can't be arrogant and proud of what we have. Why not? Well, because what you have was given to you by somebody else, by God. Now, in the church today, there's there's a false teaching segment that is teaching things like, you know what? No, 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 God wants you to pray for material wealth because the evidence that you are being a good Christian is found in the blessing of material riches. (laughs) And one verse that they're using quite frequently... See, I don't don't talk badly about certain kind of teachers unless I've read their books, and so I've read their books. And here is... (laughs) Here's one of the verses that they use all the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Why? So that by his poverty you can become rich. And then they'll say, Jesus died and rose again so that you can be supplied with riches. Pray for it. Name it. Claim it. And then I'm thinking, man, Please, whoever is listening to these false teachers and reading their books, please read the Bible. Because in the chapter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, it's an entire chapter on the radical generosity of one church to another. That the riches that he's referring to here is the riches of the blessing that it is that Jesus says, remember this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Read the Bible. Knock this stuff off. Not only that, but let's maybe go to Jesus died, right? Jesus died and rose again to make you rich. Well, well, I don't know. Maybe we should ask Jesus what he thinks about this. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 19 verse 23, "Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven." And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God." So when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they thought, who could be saved? Why? Because we all buy into the false teaching that the more successful you are in this life, the more likely you are to go to the next life. No. Wicked people are pretty successful too. So Jesus looks at them and says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And they use that verse... All things are possible. I'm going to get rich. What are you doing? In the context, he's talking about the, the danger of being rich. You can't quote that verse in order to become more rich. You see how that works? Are you tracking with me, church? Maybe not. <laughs> so then Peter says, see, we've left everything. We followed you. What, what then will we have? Jesus says to them, and I love that picture. I imagine Peter just digging in his pockets and pulling out just lint. And just like, I don't have anything. I've I've lost it all for you. And then Jesus says, uh, he says, truly I say to you in the new world, in the new creation, in the new heavens and new earth, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone. So now this is to us. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, they will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You see, the riches God promises in this life is the blessing of being like him to others. Knowing that when we live sacrificially with radical generosity in this world at great expense to ourselves in service and love of our neighbors... We actually don't lose anything because when the new creation comes, we inherit everything. So who should be the most radically generous people walking planet Earth? The Christians. Because we know, though I give up everything in the and I gain it all back anyway. So that's why it's difficult for rich people to go to heaven. That's why it's difficult for affluent folks in our culture today to want Jesus, is because they trust too much in their riches, and their attention is divided. So Paul says, whoa, whoa, "Whoa, don't be haughty, don't be superior to other people." And instead, here's what Paul writes in Romans twelve sixteen, and I think this is such a cool verse to remind us of the humility we need. He writes, "Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty." but associate with the lowly. Do you see what he says? Don't be proud and superior with those around you. Live with them. And it's more than just acknowledging, it's living with. There's a difference. You see someone who's poor, you don't just simply go, oh, you're poor. Mm." Instead you go, you're poor. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to journey with you. You know, like how we were poor and powerless and Jesus came and dwelt among us? We're to live among those who are poor and powerless. That's radical generosity. And the second thing he says as a negative command is, don't let these folks put their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You know, because of the Great Recession about a decade ago, we all should be very aware of the fact that money and wealth and prosperity is a fickle thing. People had lost their jobs, lost their homes, and because of that, they decided to take their own lives as well. You see, when you put your hope on something and that something vanishes, so does your hope. And if you have no hope, you have nothing to live for. And if you don't have anything to live for, you jump off bridges. So Paul is saying, look, guys, do not put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Instead, put your hope on God. Now, I, sometimes I, I tell people that this is a beautiful thing, and, and, and I don't think they realize that putting hope in God is a beautiful thing because of who God is. And so I'll, Psalm 146 is one of my favorite psalms. I'm going to read that just to kind of show you why it's so beautiful to put your hope in God. The psalmist writes, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. It reminds us, brothers and sisters, we as Christians, we don't put our hopes in people, we don't put our hopes in politicians who have term limits, we put our hope in a king who reigns forever. And then it goes into why this is so significant. Look at this. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who has made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves righteousness. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. That's the kind of God we serve. He's our creator. He created everything, but he's also the sustainer. He's the advocate for the poor and powerless. He is our God who is for us and not against us. Put your hope in him. Riches will fail you. But God never will. He never will. But then I love this little thing. Put your hope in God. And and look at this. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you see see the, the play on words? If you're rich, recognize that God richly provides you with everything to enjoy. In other words, one way to be rich in this world is simply to enjoy what God has given you. I don't want you as Christians to feel guilty about things that God made for you to enjoy. Like when you go to the beach and you see a sunset and you see those colors as magnificent as they may be with the dancing sparkle of the sun upon the water and you sit there and you're like, this is amazing. You don't thank blue for being blue. You look at the blueness of the sea and and the oranges and yellows and you look at it and you go, this is amazing. Thank you, God, for making this. Because one of the reasons why God made sunsets with all the colors they have is simply for you to sit back and enjoy it, because in your enjoyment of it, God is glorified in that. So when you eat that food and you're like, oh, this pasta tastes so good, oh, man. You don't sit there and go, man, capers are awesome. Instead you say, God, thank you for making things like capers and sun-dried tomatoes so that way I can put them on my tongue for your glory and my joy. (laughs) Do you guys get that? You see, when we talk about worship, we always think about instruments, but we need to stop and just realize the most si- significant kind of worship there is, is when we take natural things that God has made for our enjoyment, and we simply take them, and with gratitude in our hearts, we delight in them, recognizing God is the creator of them. That's worship. The most significant worship time I have ever had is with my family in Zion, and we didn't sing a single note but i saw the sun rise in zion national park and if you've ever seen the oranges and the yellows and the reds of zion national park you know what i mean i woke up and went oh wow god this is good you could have made these brown and they're not brown One reason we can't enjoy the things God has made for us to enjoy is because we're busy bragging and boasting about what we have. And the reason why we brag and boast about what we have is because we're constantly comparing ourselves to our neighbors. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses. And the more we try to compare ourselves to our neighbors and the more that we try to one-up our neighbors and friends and we're trying to have life experiences which are, you know, like, Instagrammable. The more we try to do that, the less likely you are to freely enjoy the things God has given you because in the back of your mind, you're always wondering how to to capture this moment and make others jealous. So brothers and sisters, just put down your phone and enjoy the moment. God has gave you that moment. Treasure it. And then he says this, they being the rich people are to do good works. And they get another play on words. There to be, okay, so you're rich. Why well, won't you to be rich in a different way? Be rich in good works. And then he says two kinds of ways to be rich in good works. To be generous, firstly, and to be ready to share, secondly. It's an action and an attitude. If you want to be rich in good works, actively be generous and have an attitude where you're ready to share. Because in so doing, verse 19, the last little phrase is so that you may take hold of that which is truly life if you want to take hold of that which is truly life it comes by way of generous action and an attitude ready to share what God has given you now at this point many times people are like okay cool how do I do that (laughs) give me some tangible stuff I came to church to get some pointers and if you're waiting for me to give them to you, I don't, I'm not that creative. I, I, I'm not that imaginative. And so what I typically do is go and ask the Bible, Bible? I don't do that. I, God, God, where can I go in your word for me to understand some application for how to be a generous person in action and be ready to share in my attitude? I found it in James 1. James chapter 1, verse 25. I'm going to read a significant portion of scripture right now. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, which is in reference to the law of Christ, which is love God and love your neighbor, and perseveres, being no hearer but, uh, one, and one who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers and sisters, the church, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and the word here is, is church, ecclesia, And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes into your church. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, come here, sit in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there. You stink. We don't want to see you. Get in the shadows. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable of it all. For he said, do not commit adultery. And also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Love God and love people. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the very things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You claim to believe the gospel, it's got to be evidenced in your godliness. But someone will say, Whoa, well, you have faith, I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the, de- even the demons believe that and shudder. There's your application. How can we be rich in good works? Here's how. We are actively generous with the resources God has given us. Not with our words alone or with our intentions, but with actions. As 1 John 3.16 says, let us not love in word, but let us love in deeds and truth. Now at this point, some are like, well, wait a minute. I don't have that much resources. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. This is not exclusively about money, but it can include your time, your food, your home, your car, your vacation home, your books, your lawn tools, or even your frequent flyer miles. You see, there could be an empty nester couple in our own church who has a son or daughter away at college who is desperately homesick and is entering into a depression but they don't have the resources to pay for an air flight uh, out to see their child because they spend all the money on tuition and you are sitting on a bank of miles and you can just love that person in our church by saying, here's the ticket, go and see your son or daughter. Go love them. Or your neighbor is trying to clean out his gutters with his fingernails. And You have a gutter cleaner tool. I don't even know what that is. (laughs) Wouldn't it not be better for you instead of sit through your front window looking through the blinds, drinking your coffee, going, Earl has no idea what he's doing. (laughs) Wouldn't it be better if you opened your garage door and you actually grabbed your tool and walked out to Earl and actually gave it to him and maybe jumped on a ladder and helped him? but also we need to be ready. And what that means is in your attitude, and your heart, you are actively ready to serve other people. This won't happen on your own natural ability because you naturally are inward focused and selfish. If you don't believe me, ask one of your relatives. <laughs> so if we need to have a new desire to serve and love others, but we naturally don't have that desire, to whom will we turn for new desires to God, who by His grace will grant you the new heart, and with it new desires to love and serve sacrificially and generously, your neighbor? Last thing is this: verse 20. "O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now what is the deposit? The deposit is a reference to the gospel. You see, Paul writes in second Timothy chapter second Timothy chapter one about how he's not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel in verse 9 is that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death, amen, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And he says, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and a teacher, which I suffer as I do. I'm not ashamed, though. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You see, in Paul's mind, what's been entrusted to him is the gospel, and so when he writes, "Guard the the deposit entrusted to you," what he's saying is, "Guard gospel theology because it's always being attacked." Now, how do you go about guarding it? There's, there's lots of ways people think they can guard the gospel. You know, you go on social media and you just, you just lambaste all the liberals, right? And you're just like, yeah, I'm standing up for the gospel. <laughs> but here's a better way. Look at this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Did you see it? Paul says, I got the gospel from Jesus. I gave it to you, Timothy. You're supposed to give it to reliable men. Those reliable men are supposed to give it to others also. Do you see how it's generational discipleship? That is how we preserve, guard, and protect the gospel, not jumping online and getting mad and angry. What does that do? But instead, we disciple one another. And how do we disciple? With the gospel. Generational discipleship, this to this to this. God said, you remember what Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. And I'm, I'm at a place now where I'm starting to believe a true disciple of Jesus is not one who says they're a disciple, but it's one who is actively making disciples. So let me ask the question, church, are you making disciples? Generationally, if not you're not guarding the gospel you may be active online but who gives a rip make disciples one of the beautiful things that happened to me this past week is I got asked to speak at a high school camp to teach the five solas to high school kids and uh It was being put on by a church called Parkway Community Church of Fairfield, California. If you know that name, it might be because I shared it with you before. That's the church where I became a Christian. And so they called me up and they're like, Phil, will you come preach at our camp? And I'm up there preaching one night and I look over to my left and and the crowd's right and the very man who was influential in leading me to Christ is sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I listened to him preach. He's the one that discipled me. I'm sitting here and I'm preaching to all these high school kids and on Thursday night we have five kids repent and believe the gospel. And I'm thinking, he discipled me, I discipled them. You've got to be kidding me. God must be glorified in this moment. So Golden Hills, we're a discipling church, are we not? Then why do we beg for volunteers in our discipleship ministry? Do you see that? you feel that right now? Because I'm sitting there at this camp and I'm thinking, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. And if anyone else could experience this moment where I've been discipled, now I'm discipling these other people, they would weep and Carl and I embraced and we were weeping because of the love and grace of God, how God's been so good to us. How do we not want that? We have to be guarding the gospel. It's been entrusted to us, and the best way to guard it is generational discipleship. And Brothers and sisters, generational discipleship is gonna be most effective when it happens, when people take gospel theology And they help people understand how it accords with their godliness. If you want true life, godly life, it means that we need to seek to be generous with our resources, whatever they may be. And we also need to guard the gospel from being perverted. We need gospel theology and our godliness to come together. And only God can do that. So let's pray. God, would you do this for us? Lord, so many people, as the book of First Timothy says, they have wandered from the faith, they have made shipwreck of their faith, they have destroyed their faith because they have abandoned gospel theology and because they have devoted their lives to what is ungodly. So, God, we don't need to focus on one or the other. We need you to help our hearts and our minds to capture the beautiful picture of the convergence of gospel theology and godliness. Bring them together in our lives, we pray. And God, as we close with these two songs, It's the most appropriate response we could possibly have as a church for all that you've done for us is to simply praise you for what you have done that you may be glorified and in the glorification of you that you would be pleased to provide us with the joy you promised. So God, grant us the joy in abundance right now and you be glorified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.